Corporate Unplugged opens the door to a world of people transforming business. They share their dreams, their experiences, and what they would never give up. So I'm so glad to have Henrik Storm Dyrsen here with me. Welcome to my podcast, Henrik. Thank you, Vesna. Henrik is the CEO of Lexel Social Ventures. It's a private social impact investment company. He has a background in Middle Eastern diplomacy, African microfinance, nonprofit consulting, and global investment banking. And he's very passionate about entrepreneurial solutions to social issues in welfare states. He's worked and lived in many countries, Saudi Arabia, Iran, US, UK, France and Sweden. So that's pretty many countries, actually, considering that you are a young guy. I get around, yeah. Yeah, exactly. What is the background really for the reason for that? I think uh, the curiosity to go out and discover other cultures and and experience other places uh, in the world came from my dad, probably, where uh, he spent almost 200 days a year at times during his career traveling and came home with magical stories from far and wide. And uh, that was, uh, I think that was an inspiration as to that was so much to be experienced out there. And there was a also legitimization that you could go out there and it was something that you could claim and, and go for. So that always beckoned uh, and, for me. And what was he doing? He worked in sales in the petrochemical industry. He sold piping for industrial plants. Uh-huh. All the pipes around like a chemical plant, for example, he would, would sell the piping system uh-huh. for those. Wow. And they were, this company was sending them, sending him around in the, these different markets? Or? Yeah, exactly. Wow. And, and uh, there was, uh, you know, industrialization has been still going on for the decades past. And he, he yeah. traveled all over the world doing that. You invest in, now in uh, scalable and financially sustainable business models with uh, big social impact. So, but can you give me a, just an example of such an investment? Sure. Something simple, for example, might be a school that tries to create a better model for dealing with underprivileged children or children in socioeconomically challenged areas mm-hmm. where failure rates of schooling are high mm-hmm. and regular schools, be it private or public, haven't succeeded very well in dealing and catering to this target group. We see schools, for example, nonprofit schools or even private schools that try to make a dent in this kind of scenario, experimenting with pedagogical techniques and Mm -hmm. how to create functional school culture and learning environment that works for these kids on their terms Mm -hmm. and in the the environment that they find themselves in. And for that purpose, we invested in in Jarva Skolan, for example, outside of Stockholm, which is in Rinkebyshista, a a suburb with some socioeconomical challenges outside of Stockholm. And um, how active are you as an investor? We've uh, we've been as active as we, as we possibly can. Uh, I think in the we've been going in three years, and we screened four hundred enterprises in the first two years. We invested in none, which was uh, disconcerting because <laughs> theoretically <laughs> that could make us a pretty bad investor. So we we tried to figure out why we didn't invest in so many, and realized that the maturity of the market requires a high tolerance for risk. There's a lot of early ventures out there. Good people, good ideas, interesting uh, resource constellations, but seldom in the same application. 
mm. great person with a, a faltering idea or a great idea, but a person who, who might not be the one that's going to take it to market. But uh, many things that would have potential if they, they had a chance. So what we've been spending our time on instead of investing so much in entrepreneurs is to figure out how can we get customers for these entrepreneurs? Because what they need is a chance to sell their products, to find a product market fit and a way to sell what they do and develop what they do. So now we help government to buy social innovation. It's been tried in other places. We have uh, our latest uh, attempt now is that we've introduced social impact bonds to Sweden, which is basically that we you could almost say that we, we bribe government to buy better solutions for the problems that they can't fix themselves. So we give them the money to try. And if it fails, then we take the risk. If it succeeds, then we can get our money back and perhaps even a little premium if it goes really well. What do you think is the really the best thing uh, that you know with this job of yours? Uh, it's easier to say the worst thing. The worst thing is is uh, having to say no to all these people who really want to uh. put their time and, and effort and resources into creating a world that's better for other people. And having to say no to lots of those people uh. <laughs> is not, not very fun. You can question whether it's necessary or not, but it's, it's challenging. Mm. The most fun is and the most rewarding is when you see the potential for problems actually being solved. And that's often uh, many of these people that fight hard in structures and contexts where you really don't think change is possible, like in government and municipalities and mm. these really, you know, it's far away from the sexy tech innovation universe and people who are changing how our kids learn, changing how mental health is dealt with, changing how social issues are met at their genesis. And that can have fantastic impact when it's scaled up to, to national and levels. And do you have uh, some experiences where you've taken a formula that you've found in Sweden, for example, for a school or, or whatever it could be, and then that, that can be then applied in other countries with more or less similar structures. Have you yeah, done so that? Well, well, the social impact bond model we, we took from, from England and, and, and realized a Scandinavian version of it. So that's one model. Other models that have traveled is, well, the classic example for social enterprise is microfinance that spread from Bangladesh all over the world. And is, is, is a commercial type investment today that you can invest in with your, your pension fund can invest in, for example. Mm. And uh, But we also see transfers within Europe, for example, where recruit companies that specialize in helping autistic people oh. gain jobs as troubleshooters for programming and tech development. We also see technology transfer in terms of innovations from, that's pretty cool, from the, where tech innovation comes from uh, developing countries and actually gets applied in industrialized countries and, and modern welfare states. Mm -hmm. That's pretty exciting that we're all not always the ones who are able to create the right space for innovations that we might need. And, and how do you find each other? The best case is always comes referred. So basically where someone that knows what we look for sees something and uh, throws that our way. Mm -hmm. That is a far higher uh, success rate in terms of screening those ventures. When we look at spontaneous applications, we would expect about 1%. We should invest in about 1% of all ventures. When we look at referred cases, it's about 60%. The market potentially is enormous because what we talk about is basically replacing 
large part of the welfare sector with ventures that get paid for quality mm. and they get paid for creating better outcomes for people mm. rather than the number of hospital beds or the number of lunches at an elderly care home and so forth. Mm. Rather happily, you know, living elderly or kids that don't quit school, like that's what we should be paying for. So the market is incredibly large, but the cases are not quite so mature yet. Mm. So today, I think we estimate the market is about 500 million Swedish or 50 million dollars, 50 million mm. euros thereabouts in Sweden. And when it comes to ventures and, and, uh, and entrepreneurial ventures, the ticket sizes, the, the investments that are being requested are, are relatively small. Mm-hmm. It's like almost seed stage from international perspective, so somewhere between 300,000 to 500,000 euros, something mm-hmm. like that, where there's a lot of need. If you look at social impact bonds, they can absorb much more money. So if you, for example, overhaul the social integration of migrants in a municipality, that could be a project that's about 5 million euros, mm. which absorbs then a lot more money and, and uh, hopefully uh, reaches more people. And if uh, impact investing would become, let's call it business as usual one day, uh, and perhaps represent a few percent of, of professionally managed global assets, that would channel vast amounts of money towards you know, solutions for these big problems, everything from poor health to climate change and so on. Do you think that's reasonable to expect? I think it's already happening as a slow march. Today I had lunch with one of the most influential pension fund managers in Sweden. Mm-hmm. And in his own words, a young pension fund manager says that you know, ESG environmental, sustain, uh, social and governance criteria for investments is the new hot thing. Mm. That's what uh, all the executives in, in, in asset management want to be seen to be, be putting the money towards. That's where, where owners and, and, and political interest is driving money to some degree. But it doesn't get, get there faster than it's possible to, to get it there. The good news, I think, about social innovation is that we are at such a low level <laughs> of social innovation in Western countries still that the potential is enormous. So even a little money can go a long way. And the impact on people's lives is not linear. It's not you put in $1,000 and you help one person. It's you put in a couple of million and you help a Swedish municipality develop a model for helping young people with mental health that model can be rapidly replicated in the rest of the country. Mm. So the impact on people is exponential. Mm. So even a little money that starts to develop models that for early interventions in particular will start having incredibly large effects in terms of socioeconomic mm. gains as well as human social mm. gains. But Henry, going back to, to you, what is actually what you would consider your passion. And when I say passion, I'm intending not just, you know, things that we kind of think are fun and enjoyable, but just what is really something that you're so convinced about that you would, you know, you're willing to kind of suffer for, so to say. Yeah, and suffer you do <laughs> once in a while. <laughs> I feel like the most inspirational thing to me to work with and the most challenging thing to work with and, and most stimulating and, and what gives me those joy in terms of applying my time and the, the faculties or, or whatever talent I may or may not have 
is people. People are incredibly complex. They have unfathomable potential. Mm. And at the same time, we are not more developed as a society or, or as individuals and in that we all stumble and we fumble and you know we have successes once in a while and then we, we, we fail a little bit and we get up again. Mm. But uh, what people can achieve is, is mind-boggling. And what I've thought for myself is that to the degree that I want to make a dent in the universe, I don't think I can do much with my own two hands. But if I can help other people do what they really, really feel passionate mm. about, then I can have much more impact helping them. And if I create business or models for how to help people, then I can make even more impact. Mm. So I'm pretty happy kind of aggregating and backing away and helping other people do the work as it were, but making sure that they have all the resources and an opportunity mm. that they need to do what they're passionate about. Mm. And that's something that I feel is fantastic when you see someone you know quit their corporate job and get into the social enterprise sector because you've inspired them into <laughs> where the potential you know that is a fantastic potential to exploit there yeah do you think we will see more and more of that people quitting the corporate world going into i think it's already happening uh, it's it's pop culture kind of in the making the question is also when will that turn into a bubble and when would it become so popular and, and perhaps more or less successful that people start getting a little bit burnt and things like that as well. Mm. What we saw during the refugee crisis is, is an incredible amount of people stepping out and volunteering like never before, receiving Syrians arriving at the central station in Stockholm and Malmö, for example, and burning out like flies because there was no real system how to manage thousands of volunteers that threw themselves hand and fist into this. And, and it needs to be people wanting to work with sustainability is not necessarily sustainable. We have to be sustainable as individuals. Organizations have to be sustainable. Otherwise, whatever impact we think we're going to make on society is not going to be very sustainable. And, and what turning points do you, can you say that you had in your life that have you know, influenced you the most so far? I think uh, I grew up pretty privileged and spoiled in, in a suburb of Stockholm. So my incentives to get out into the world and challenge myself weren't perhaps enormous. I had some inspiration to go see the world because my father had seen the world. But I think what really kind of uh, turned the tables for me is um, in my youth, having a family that was engaged in, in associations that worked with uh, less fortunate people and, and start to gain an appreciation that there was lots of people out there that had troubles and issues, seeing mental health issues, seeing substance abuse, you know, in, in uh, mm -hmm. things that are not very much talked about in, in middle class families, for example, that is taboo, but, but that many people have around them, you know, at a distance or close by. It's recognizing that even if you live in a, in a cute little suburb, it doesn't mean that everything's fabulous behind every window and door, right? That may be curious about people. And, but I think what really got me going at some point, because comfort can be debilitating, is I had a, uh, an, a couple actually of near-death experiences in, in a couple of years' time. They were quite close together. I had a car accident in Riyadh, Saudi Arabia. I had, uh, we had an engine failure on a boat in the military when I was, doing, when I was in the Navy that risked basically us getting shipwrecked. And I had another car accident in uh, Kenya, 
and in Nairobi. And this was all in the span of a couple of years, like four or five years that I had these experiences. And you were which age, more or less? And by the way, not a particularly reckless driver, but, but <laughs> you, know, you can get into accidents anyway. Yeah. I was in the military, I was 1920. Uh -huh. And I was studying maybe 22, 23, 24 when uh -huh. I was abroad having these car accidents. And it just drove home the point that life is short, it's, it's fragile, and it can be over in a second. You know, whether you're crossing the street in Stockholm or, the, or you're, you're barreling down the highway of Riyadh, Saudi Arabia. And uh, you might as well make something worthwhile out of it. So that's always been mm. a driver to say that, you know, get off your, your butt and, and do something. <laughs> yeah, it's it's really uh, interesting that we always need also these kind of black and white somehow experiences to kind of wake up. But here, the challenge is here that you um, you also manage to to maintain that insight throughout your daily life because it's it's easy to kind of relax and and forget about it until the next thing happens, right? Yeah, it's uh, how do you keep reality checking yourself? It's a curious yeah. question. I mean, my job currently helps me very well because I get exposed to all kinds of social problems and I get to see all the issues that yeah. happen behind the veneer of, you know, the beautiful welfare state of Sweden, all the things that get yeah. dropped and uh, perhaps never, never unearthed. Yeah. But we, we dig well, so we, we find a lot of interesting things behind the hidden in the wardrobe and, and uh, a lot of human destinies and fates that you really... Uh, incite you to, to try and make a difference. But if you would uh, assume that you have like all doors open and you have all, all resources you can imagine available, then what would you innovate or, or change? I'd start thinking about how to make the biggest impact. Like if it, I think it's almost even easier. I th to be honest, I think the job I have is better than having all the resources in the world uh -huh. because having little resources forces creativity. So I have 5 million euros and that's plenty to do something, certainly not enough to do everything, but the bounded rationality and bounded creativity, limitations is the, you know, is the mother of creativity is one saying. And to think about the mission that I got was take 5 million euros and make Sweden better, period. And if you don't make Sweden better, you failed. That's an interesting, <laughs> that's an interesting challenge. Yeah. So, okay, so what can you do mm -hmm. with a little bit of money or some money that will have so much derivative and follow-on impact that uh, it will keep on impacting for years to come. Mm. And then you quickly realize that it's not going to be about helping one person. It's not going to be about helping one organization. It's going to be about changing, you know, creating new models for doing things, changing the way the mm -hmm. system works to channel resources and other things. So. What I would do if I had, you know, more resources or, or if I did it all over again, I think I would try and find the nexus of where do people want to see change? Where does the world need change? Where are people winning to go in and make change, but where change is still not happening? So there you should theoretically have a critical mass. And then you just have to figure out what is needed to unlock that change. What is needed to, un to get all these resources and potentials together. And I think, for example, the social impact bonds that we work with are one kind of tool that has this kind of logic in them, though certainly not you know, a cure-all to everything.
Do you think that you will stay in the social kind of impact uh, investment reality for long? Or will you eventually be stepping into some kind of a traditional kind of company? Do you even... Can you imagine that? I think, I've, I think I've done my term in the corporate <laughs> world. Uh, but uh, my, we haven't spoken about that. But in a previous life, I, I, I uh, helped to deconstruct one of the investment banks in London after the financial crisis. <laughs> I think we uh, let go 30,000 people during the course of a couple of years and so on. So that was, was an interesting experience in the, in the, the ups and downs <laughs> of corporate life. But certainly educational. I think that it's clear that people see the potential of impact investing. And I'm really happy to see lots more talent getting curious about it. In that sense, I have a responsibility to create an example that it's it's interesting and fun and rewarding to work with it. Uh, I think we're already creating some of that inspiration and others are, are doing fantastically uh, organizations like Norgen and others that are really helping to put these kinds of things at the map is great. But I wonder where my impact is best going to be placed. So if I, if I follow my philosophy of trying to help people rather than putting myself at the center of everything, then my ambition should be if I want to grow impact investing to help other people grow impact investing mm. and figuring out how to do that. And if you would just you know, imagine that you had uh, a microphone and you could talk to all the leaders, is there any kind of key advice or whatever that you would give them? I would wish them more curiosity because there are so much, there's so much to be gained by being curious in our time, I think. There's so much contention, so many differences, and we, we talk a lot about problems and we, we see the world uh, you know, flaunted in digital media bombarding us and we almost want to st stop looking at the world because it's throwing so much against us. But I think finding curiosity about how to improve things is important. It's important to keep curiosity alive and not become despondent or negative about the potential to understand and to cut through mm. the flow, cut through the limitations, cut through all of this complexity that we find ourselves in but just being curious about where the opportunities lie. Mm. And I think a part of that answer is also listening to the younger generations, understanding how they see the world differently because they grew up natively in the kind of information environment that we have. And I think that leaders today don't understand how our world is changing, but you can see it in the reality of the young. Mm. And, uh, in, you know, in this kind of sometimes somebody is saying also it's a crisis of economic and political leadership and all that. So who do you think then uh, we should all turn to for a, a vision of the future, you know, to kind of have a good version of a rebirth of society? <laughs> I think the young is a part of that solution, as it always is. Like, you know, the, the next generation will always be the young <laughs> by nature. Yeah. But I think that we are today in a place where the ruling classes, if you will, are you know, more or less the parental generation of the millennial generation that are young and are just venturing into the, the labor market today. And they still don't understand each other, even though it's just one generation in between. The condition of digital nativism that surrounds millennial is a fundamentally different condition mm. 
of reality than I think most of the, the powers that be appreciate. And you start seeing things today like what's happening in terms of youth leadership today, how young people are organizing themselves is fundamentally different from what's happened before. The nature is the same. People interested in, in change, people reacting to things want to organize, right? In 68, if you take the parent generation, they, they went out on the streets and they demonstrated and they, they wanted to force change. What the young are doing today is that they connect online. But the difference between those things is that the 68 movement could spread perhaps on television and on leaflets and by political activism. The young today can immediately disseminate messages all over the world to billions of people. And what that is forcing is, is an incredible amount of spontaneous organization mm. everywhere. And you also see uh, young people organizing internationally, so spontaneous networks appearing based on interest areas where, for example, when I speak to international young entrepreneurs today living in different cosmopolitan cities, they think elite universities are irrelevant. They're ineffective. Mm. Harvard, Stockholm School of Economics are ineffective mm. because if you can connect to your peers in New York, in Singapore, in Laos, in, in uh, Brasilia, then you're infinitely more powerful than with a Harvard degree on your CV. Mm. Because you can suddenly connect to opportunities and perspectives that would take you years to uncover or discover in, in, in years past. Mm. So in that sense, the young generation is hyper-enabled. They're also hyper-stressed because <laughs> they have all this potential. But, uh, and they're, they're trying to fight with all this potential. But it, it's exciting to see what they're going to make of it, for sure. There's a lot of young people that are stressed then. You can wonder what solutions they're going to turn to to deal with that. And one hypothesis that I've heard is that ideas will become more powerful and values will become more powerful. Yeah. There's even a political theory called the, the empty core of liberalism, which is obviously a critique against liberalism, but that says that liberalism is really nice because it gives us opportunity and freedom of choice. We like that. That's uh -huh. good stuff. But it does not give us a method by which to choose. In order to be able to make choice out of all of these opportunities, you have to have something more. You have to have values or you have to have ideas of what to choose. And it's interesting then to think that the millennial generation is currently being kind of surveyed as having a particularly strong engagement towards having an impact in the world, trying to make a dent in the universe. Mm. So maybe they are developing organically this solution for how to make sense of the world and also how to impact the world. They, they're, they're creating the values that they need in order to navigate. But it's, it's interesting to see how, how, you know, will there already be a counter reaction to that of young people, you know, going out into the countryside and switching off their phones. <laughs> do you ever do that? I try. <laughs> I try. I have a hideout in the woods and then do very much enjoy uh, walking so far up the mountain that the, the cell phone coverage doesn't work anymore. Or, or sailing on the sea until the, 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 the little bars on the phone go die down. And what you said about uh, having, you know, the values as a guidance, I mean, exactly, I, that's what I believe that the corporations also uh, need to do. And many, many are, but, you know, still, the values or the culture of a company is really the best strategy. But if you were to give an advice to yourself, like 15 years ago, for example, what would that be? what could have 
being useful is to you know kind of understand what to value and i think you know have fun and explore be curious i think is is to some degree what i've tried to do yeah. but i i'm surely had plenty of anxiety and 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 wonders about you know what's right and, and better or worse or whatever and trying to find my place as well as everyone else so mm. but i think just concentrating on having fun and being curious and also being generous i think that's probably that's maybe it if i would change something i uh -huh. would try to teach myself the lesson that the more you give to the world around you you get infinitely in return yeah and that positive spiral is not something that they teach in school i feel mm. in general i think whatever you would call like life wisdom and so on is not taught in school in that way whilst in for example cultures like in india and so on that part comes okay via the school as well but also via two or three generations living together often right so you get that automatically in your family life and today with our modern society where we meet very seldom maybe with the parents grandparents and so on you don't get that <laughs> so where is the life wisdom going to come from you know to people especially if they're not spontaneously looking for it or or interested in it Something that's being talked about in later years is, you know, just the basics of emotional intelligence. Understanding emotions, understanding anger, fear, happiness yeah. are basic things that we don't teach in school, but that actually people struggle with, mm -hmm. not just when they're young, but when they're older. Mm -hmm. Understanding their own emotions, being able to deal with their own emotions, their reactions, whether something, uh, whether an emotion needs to trigger stress or action. You know, the cognitive behavioral therapy is making a good business out of the confusion of people not being able to separate emotions, reactions, and, and actions, mm. and, and thoughts. And being 18 years old in many countries means that you are an adult, so to say. You're a pretty independent person. You can kind of take responsibility for yourself. And at the same time, I see so many people who are only 18 and have huge problems, and uh, the state is kind of interfering and saying to the parents, you cannot... You cannot influence your kid. You have no right to be in the same meeting with, for example, between the, the kid and uh, a psychiatrist or a doctor or whoever. So you're like detached from your own kid just because they're 18, uh, which makes me wonder, you know, what did we think of <laughs> when we made these rules? Yeah, another example of that is interesting when it comes to, like, for example, integration, that in the migrant families that have come to Sweden over time, uh, it has for a long time been the case that the young who then grow up in Sweden are fluent in Swedish, whereas the parents may be not very kind of competent in, in the Swedish language, which means that the young get the job of translating all official interactions, which gives them incredible power in the family to, you know, as teenagers might be more or less forthcoming with, you know, what the grade actually means from school, what the message from the doctor actually says and so forth. And at the same time, have to grow up incredibly quickly to take on responsibility even before they're, they're mature, no matter what the paper says when you grow up and not. And I think there is a, a discrepancy between how young people are enabled or forced today mm. to take responsibility for themselves. Going back to companies, what do you think is the most important thing for them to focus on right now? What is not realized right now is that companies, and uh, to some degree it's discussed that capitalism has a crisis of legitimacy, but I think it's, it's worse than that. I think that 
it's not the ideologies of capitalism that has a problem. It's, it's, it's basically the function of a company in society, mm. in a corporate venture, the role of an entrepreneur. What is the motivation? I get, I get dumbfounded when I listen to politicians of every color that seem to have no functional conception of what the motive of an entrepreneur is. It's, it's assumed to be that they want to make as much money as possible. I've never met an entrepreneur that was only interested in making money. Yeah. The only entrepreneurs I meet are people who want to solve problems. Mm. And then those kinds of problems can be, you know, creating the best lighting solution for a party, or it can be, you know, helping people achieve better schooling. There's all kinds of problems. But that entrepreneurial endeavor and economic activity is something that has a fundamental value in society, is something that we are not having the right conversations about. I think. And instead, we're, we're having conversations about sort of lofty ideals like we used to have in the beginning of the, the nine, you know, 20th century, right. whether communism or capitalism is the right solution. You know, so we go left or go right. I think the problem is that we're, we're not capable of explaining and having a functional dialogue that people understand about how our society works. Like you were saying earlier, how does education work? Does it work? How do systems and welfare work? Do they work? Can we just assume they work? Yeah. Do we not have to have conversations about it? I was thinking about like companies like Tata Group or even uh, Johan Andresen that I was talking to a couple of months ago on the podcast. And he said, it's actually pretty simple. I mean, you put the social impact agenda first and then you organize the business around it. That's the way to go. I mean, it's, it's, it there's no be... other way. One of the most shocking uh, nuggets of information that I come across starting in this industry is after the financial crisis, the Great Depression, a whole lot of things were done. One of the things that were done is a lot of deregulation in order to create the modern kind of frameworks for capitalism. For example, the founding of the more popular versions of the limited company, the basic limited company, which has been you know, copied in, in countries all over the world. And the basically, you know, stock-owned limited company is, is, a, is a fantastic solution as a legal tool to take. It's nebulous, it's naked, it can contain anything, it can do anything. Uh, so it's very, very useful as a tool to organize activity. But a part of what was done then is that they took away a basic regulation that said any organization has to have a purpose. That's one of the things that we took away when we created modern capitalism. We took away the limitation that any organization created cannot be just a shell company to harbor tax, you know, in a certain jurisdiction. It has to have a purpose in society that's not, you know, criminal or, <laughs> or, or detrimental. And that's an interesting question. Like, what if companies actually had a purpose? If you have that, then everything else comes into place. But and, and if we force ourselves to lift ourselves even higher, kind of on a, on a global level, what do you think the world needs most at this time? When you hear and see the dialogues in news around kitchen tables and dinners and conversations, there's a lot of, uh, you know, at, at this time, a lot of negativity. There's also a lot of sense of potential but uh, almost uh, a lot of people are frightened and, and, and uncertain about, you know, how will all this potential, will all this potential really manifest into a better world for people mm. and, and nature and, and so forth. And 
I think it comes down again to curiosity. Like what I really wish the world is more curiosity. Try to understand. We see all these differences now. We see all the problems. We see all the challenges. We see all the potential. But it doesn't become anything unless we start getting curious and getting closer to the things that uh, jive us. Uh, so, you know, if you feel uncomfortable about, you know, lots of new cultures in your everyday life, you know, be curious. Try to understand them. Anyone who's traveled knows that beyond the unknown, there are fascinating things to discover that enrich not only your understanding of something far away or something beyond your, your where, where you've grown up perhaps, but also understands your, uh, informs your understanding of yourself. Mm. And if we're trying to figure out, if our crisis of, of identity today is to figure out how we ourselves contribute to, to, to the world around us, and, and uh, in, in, even if in a small place, I think the only way to discover ourselves is through the eyes of others. Mm. And then we have to interact with others and try to understand them and help them to understand us. So, Henrik, do you have any final kind of piece of advice to people who are listening? Something I had learned once, I was at a terribly boring lecture at some sort of business conference. It was a person talking about referrals and that if you want people to help you, you have to help them to help you. And But what he said opened my eyes incredibly because what it meant to me was if you want the world to smile on you and give you opportunities, if you want serendipity, if you want to help luck to find you, then it's not about you working super hard. It's not about you finding the right way. It's about other people helping you to find that or to get that thing done. Oh. And to help other people to help you is a very simple thing. It's, you have to be clear about what you want, you have to be clear. It's hard sometimes to know what you want, but if you know what you want to give, if you know what you're prepared, what you like giving, what you like being generous with, what you have that you want to give to the world, whether it's your talents or your interests or your energy, if you're clear about that, then people can know that and people can place that. And the people around you can reach much, much, much further than you can do. And they will be able to see where your particular energy or generosity or the thing you want to gift, gift society, where that can be placed in the worlds that they know better than you do. So I think knowing what you want to give and how you want to be generous and being articulate about that can be incredibly instrumental in helping others help you and, and helping you navigate the world. Very good advice, really. Very good advice. How was it to be on the pod? It was fun, thank you. <laughs> I think it's so worthwhile people having a chance to listen to stories. Everyone has a story to tell, right? But not everyone can relate to everyone. And I think it's it's great to give a chance to, it seems like we, we were all we're struggling with the same human condition, but, and, and the challenges that, that life and the career and, and then, you know, the world throws at us. But it's difficult to, to figure out your own way unless you hear stories that you can relate to and get inspired by. And then you need to gather a lot of people with different stories. And uh, I think you're doing that fantastically. Thank you. Thank you, Henrik. To find out more about uh, Henrik and his work, you can head to uh, Lexel socialventures.com and of course you can also follow him on twitter at lsv henrik 
and also Facebook Lexel Social. Yes. Thank you very much. Thank you all for listening. And until next time, live with purpose and remember to unplug. Ciao.